this sermon series called Fight the Good Fight. Uh, we this is week four uh, of this series. We're going to have one more week next week um, talking about um, fighting for our culture. Um, and we, we just thought, you know, everybody seems to be fighting about everything today. And, and it seems like they're fighting over some things that I, I'm not saying they're not important, but uh, in the grand scheme of things, eternally, and as Christ followers, we seem to get caught into the arguments and to the fights of the culture. And, uh, and so we thought, we're, we want to give you something that's worth fighting for. We want to fight the good fight. And, and so we've talked about fighting for community and fighting for the, the hearts and minds of our children and, and fighting for our spouse. Uh, and so today, I, I want us to take a look at what it looks like to fight for uh, our thoughts, our minds. Uh, the theme is 1 Timothy chapter 6. The theme verse is 1 Timothy 6.11. Timothy, you are God's man, so run from all of these errors. Instead, chase after true holiness, justice, faithfulness, love, hope, and tender humility. So fight with faith for the winner's prize. Lay your hands upon eternal life to which you are called about uh, and about which you made the good confession before the multitude of witnesses. I, I want to just start by reminding you that when you gave your life to God, uh, so, for some of you, maybe that was recent. For some of you, that could have been a very long time ago. Uh, but when you gave your life to God, in that moment, you got a new heart. But you did not get a new mind. If you, if you gave your heart to God on Wednesday, I'm not saying that there, you're not grateful and happy to know God and, uh, and, and to have that passion of knowing God and having a new heart, but on Thursday, your mind is still thinking the way that it's always thought. And, and until there's the renewing of the mind, it, that's, that's why Scripture talks about this, that there is a process that's in place from that moment forward called the renewing of the mind. And so even though you have a new heart, it doesn't necessarily mean you have a new mind because the Lord hasn't, uh, because your mind hasn't been renewed yet. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. I want us to look at that word stronghold there. It's akaroma, probably not saying it correctly, but that's the Greek word for stronghold or fortress. That's the other definition. It means that it is a castle or a fort or a prison. And in this context, it's really talking about a prison of lies. The picture that I have, the thought that I have when I hear about stronghold is uh, two different places that I've been able to visit. One is the, uh, the old town, Puerto Rico, uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico. And then the other is uh, Cartagena, the walled city of Cartagena in, in Colombia. And both of those are, were set up as a fortress. They also kept prisoners. They had cells there. And it was set up to kind of guard against anybody coming in. And so when we talk about the stronghold and when we talk about demolishing strongholds, it's really demolishing the prison of our minds. 
a prison of lies. It's a way of thinking that if you could get out of it, you would actually then be free from that prison. Some have been touched by God and set free by God, but you're still continuing to think the way that maybe you always thought. It goes on in verse 5 in 2 Corinthians 10. It says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And then we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So have you ever been in a situation or a circumstance where um, you know that you're supposed to step out into a decision and, and there's just fear that takes over, that, that all of the thoughts of what could go wrong or bad kind of flood your mind and it paralyzes you to the place at which you don't move forward? Uh, when Kelly and I graduated from Bible college, we were talking to a couple different uh, pastors about coming and, um, and coming onto their staff. And uh, one of them kind of, it, it was like, um, we were talking to three and then it went down to two and then it went down to one. Not because we stopped talking to them, but they stopped talking to us. And so um, it got down to the one and and he, he kept saying, yeah, you know, we want you up here. We're going to take care of you guys. And I would say, well, you know, like, wh what are we going to get paid? And he was like, well, we'll take care of you. And, and I'm like, oh, that's great. But, like, how much are you going to take care of us? <laughs> and, and so it was just this a long conversation because we were afraid that when we moved up there, they weren't going to pay us, they weren't going to take care of us. There was all of these fears that flood you. And had we allowed those thoughts to paralyze us, we may not have uh, experienced the blessing and the, the grace of God over our life in that season. And then the same thing happened when uh, we got the phone call to maybe consider coming to here. That uh, it, it was a long conversation of like, is this the right decision? We were doing well. We were going to plant a church. And, and it's like, this is Texas. And this is a big move. And this is across the country. And all of these things. And, and, and there's just these fears. Everything bad that can go through your mind often does in those moments. Have you experienced that before? It's hard. And, it, and it's, it's difficult for us to really not give in to the prison of the lies and really hold true to uh, be ca take captive those thoughts and, and to make those thoughts obedient to Christ. That's a stronghold. It's being held captive by your thoughts and unable to break free from that. If you're like me, uh, you can get frustrated because... It seems like uh, everything, it, all the voices of the world, of our culture, of the enemy of our soul, it, it seems like everything is screaming at us. And yet, the voice of God is so quiet. It's just a whisper. See, we want to operate in the will of God and we, we want to to take captive our thoughts, but it's really hard to hear what God is saying to us when everyone else is yelling. 
It's difficult. And you know why the voice of God is so quiet? You know why he whispers? Because you have to be really, really close to hear it. And that's exactly where he wants us. He wants us close. He wants us in proximity. He wants us to be in his presence so that we can hear his voice. It reminded me of... um, of our, our family is not a, a super loud family. I mean, we, not that we can't yell at times, but, uh, but our middle child, and I'll just be honest with you, like, you know, we're saving up money to put our kids through counseling because of all the times I've used them as illustrations, but um, <laughs> like you guys are saving up for your kids' college fund. We just want them to be well-adjusted in life. But our, our middle child, after we had gotten done moving, we packed the whole house up and everything. It was, it was a, a long, long day. We decided we were going to bless our kids and take them to a really good meal. And, uh, and so we take, them to, uh, we take our kids to, to Eddie V's, to Wild Fish. And if you've ever been there, it's really fancy. It's a nice restaurant. And we were all, I think, still wearing our moving clothes, but we didn't care. It's Texas. Um, so... <laughs> We show up to this really nice restaurant, and we order our meals. Goes around the table. We order our meal, and and a uh, few minutes go by. And next thing I know, I see the our waiter uh, with a cart, and he wheels the cart up to our table. And sitting on the cart are like two massive lobsters. And I'm thinking, oh, they got the wrong table. And so I said, oh, I'm sorry, we, we didn't order the lobsters. And I don't order the lobster because when it says market price, it's never good. Like, the market's never low on these things. So it said market price. We would never order it, right? And, and so the, our waiter said, well, your, your daughter ordered it. And I said, uh, no. I've trained my kids well. They know when it says market price, they don't order that. And, and so she goes, no, I ordered the lobster tacos, which is on the appetizer menu and not the market price menu. It was a lot lower, but he had only heard lobster because she didn't speak up. And when you don't speak up, you have to get in close and you have to listen close. You have to be in proximity. They took the lobster back, and they were probably really happy to do it because they were all in the back eating lobster that day probably, but... So my point is, is that with everything so loud going on around us right now, and it is noise, we now more than ever have to press in to the presence of God and the closeness of God so that we can hear his voice. So we can hear his voice. Romans 12 says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, his pleasing, and his perfect will. God doesn't have three different wills for our life. It's not God's will is sometimes good, it's sometimes pleasing, and it's sometimes perfect. It's, it's no, it's a progression. But the more we press in, the more we hear the voice of God, 
we hear the good will of God, and then we hear his pleasing will, and then we experience his perfect will for our life. In Bible college, they teach you what is called the law of the first order, which means that when you read something in Scripture, you have to go back to the very first time in which it's addressed so that you understand the context and, and what it actually means later on. And in our case, in we have to go really all the way back to Genesis when man fell because of thinking, because of his thoughts. You've got Adam and Eve, they've been created, they've been placed in the garden, and, and you have this perfect scenario, this perfect situation where they could walk and talk with God and, and all of these things. And in one day, they had a thought. Something entered their minds and they recognized that maybe we don't have everything. They thought maybe there's something more that we're missing out on. And so one day, as the story goes, the serpent shows up and during a very vulnerable day, they ate from the tree. Now they began to blame one another, right? They start pointing fingers at each other. They point fingers at the snake. They point fingers at God. God, if you wouldn't have given me this woman, then this would have never happened, right? I know some of you do that still today. and Don't do that. It's not good. And if you do do that, you should listen to last week's message. You know, I, th I think about Bible stories a lot. And I, this is one that I always think about because I, I think about what, what would I do in their situation? How would I respond to the snake? You know, what, would I be able to have the, uh, the self-control and, and the closeness in my relationship with God? But then I have these other thoughts and the other thoughts are less holy. And, and I think, you know, we would, if God would have made Adam and Eve from Louisiana, we would not be in the situation we're in. Because somebody from Louisiana isn't going to eat the apple, they're going to eat the snake. <laughs> and then we don't have a problem. At least if you're Cajun. What if we, what if we were to just audit our thoughts? Because we're thinking all the time. We never stop thinking. Most of us. No, we, we never stop thinking. So what if we just took a moment and audited our thoughts? Think about what you think about. Just for a moment, I'll be quiet. Think about what it is that you think about on a regular basis. Satan has one goal in life, and that is to keep us from growing in our relationship with God. It's to keep us from pressing in and drawing close and hearing his voice. Satan wants us to stare at the storm. He wants us to stare at the pain and focus in on that. But God really wants us to stare at his blessing over our life and glance at the pain. We don't ever get to ignore the pain. We don't ever get to say, well, that doesn't exist and just, you know, try to speak it out of existence. No, but, but we also don't need to focus on it. 
We don't need to be so consumed by our pain. Instead, we need to be consumed by God's blessing in our life. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart. Guard your heart, guard your mind. For everything you do flows from it. So the first thing is this. My thoughts control my life. Proverbs 23.7 says, For he is the kind of person who's always thinking about the cost. He's always thinking And here's what happens is, if our thoughts control our life, then oftentimes what can happen is if you're the kind of person that's super negative all of the time, right? You're always thinking negatively, always thinking of worst case scenario. Sometimes our thinking can become our friend. We don't know how to get rid of that in our life. If if you're one who always finds themselves in conflict and you, you're always arguing with someone, conflict can actually become your friend. Your fighting instinct becomes a friend to you. You maybe yell at, in conflict or you manipulate in conflict. Whatever the case, there's something about your thoughts that all of a sudden become comfortable and you become so familiar that they're now your friend. We have love languages, of course, but I think we also have hate languages, things that we've allowed to consume our mind and how we respond. I have recently started taking up, uh, not taking up, but playing a little bit more golf, and I'm not very good, uh, but I was watching the Ryder Cup, I think that was last weekend that I was watching it, and And if you're not familiar with the Ryder Cup, it's like a bunch of Americans playing a bunch of Europeans, and we slaughtered them this year. But uh, maybe slaughter is not the right Christian term to use, uh, especially when you're talking about Europeans and Americans. But um, we, we, we destroyed them. And... And I was watching one of uh, the holes. It was a par three, one a really difficult par three. And one of our players, I should have, kn- I should know his name, but I don't. Uh, he actually sealed the win for for the Americans on this hole. And it was because he lined up and and he knew exactly where he needed to put his ball. And he just nailed it and he hit it and it just rolled right close to the cup. And it was just a great shot. I don't know how to do that. I don't know where my ball's going to go. When I line up and I do everything that those guys do and everything, when, when I go to strike the ball, I have no clue where it's going. None. And so what I do is I adjust. Like if, if my ball's going that way, I'll, I will turn my body and I'll be like, okay, it's going to go like that and land up on, you know, and, and then I hit it and I hit it straight. You know, so it... I just never know. I, I don't know where to aim because I don't know where it's going. And I wonder if sometimes we're kind of the same way. We have no idea where our thoughts are going, where we're going, and so we have no idea where to aim our lives. Our mind is this battleground for sin. Like if you're addicted to pornography, but, you, you, but you're still thinking about it. We, oftentimes what happens is we'll just use an addiction like this where it's like, okay, there's an addiction there. I need to kind of avoid and remove and all of that. And if I can just, you know, not have access to it, then, then I'll be an overcomer. And the truth is, is it's in your mind. 
There's, there's something going on there. The addiction is in the mind. It's not enough to just remove because there's still thoughts. Romans 7 says, For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, and it's waging war against the law of my mind, and it's making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Romans 7 is one of those great chapters that Paul's, Paul's me, Paul's you. Like he's, he's being vulnerable in the sense of saying, listen, I keep doing the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I want to do. Because I keep thinking about it, I keep processing it, and, and he says, who's going to rescue me from this death? And then he says, thanks be to Christ Jesus. The Spirit of God knows our weakness. He knows where we're weak. And it's why the Bible talks so much about what we think. So then my thoughts can be reset by the Spirit of God. Romans 8 says, Those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. The mind Governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile towards God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. But I need to tell you that Satan does not have the ability to control your thoughts. He doesn't have that control over your life. But God has also chosen not to control your thoughts. So the good and bad news is you are the gatekeeper of your thoughts. You are the gatekeeper. So how do you get out of this? Well, the first is we must feed our mind the truth. If you have a lot of lies, you need a lot of truth. Psalm 1, 1 through 3 says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, stand in the way that sinners take or uh, sit in the company of mockers, but those who delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose light leaves do not lit, leaves do not wither, whatever they do prospers. How many of you have ever been to the uh, Library of Congress in Washington, D.C.? Just raise your hands. Like anybody been able to visit that? It's a pretty amazing place. It's not one of the places that you think to go to when you're visiting D.C., but uh, I've had the opportunity to go a couple times. I enjoy it because it's more than just a library. There's a lot of other things. But anybody know how many books are in the Library of Congress that weren't in first service? 39 million books in the Library of Congress, and four, uh, written in 470 different languages. There's like 74 million transcripts also in the Library of Congress. As I think about it, all 39 million, all but one book, you read it, but one book reads you. Bible. It's the truth of God's word. It changes you. It's the only book in the Library of Congress that changes you in this kind of way. It begins to cultivate the truth of who God is and how he applies to your life. 
The Bible says that, uh, or nowhere in the Bible does it say that the truth will set you free, but it does say that if you know the truth, it will set you free. We're, we're really good about having the Bible available to us, having it on our phones in an app or sitting on a nightstand somewhere or on a coffee table. We, we have the truth, but we don't always know the truth. The assumption is, is if we have the truth, then we will be set free. But that's not what it says. It says if you know the truth, then you will be set free. We have to, we have to understand this. Because if we don't, we will go through this life just using some language and some Christianese to get us through and wonder why things don't change. Which takes me to the second point is we must take our thoughts captive. Some of you might walk around saying things like, my life isn't going to get any better. Some might have the tendency to think if I had a different spouse, my life would be better. If I lived in a different location, my life would be better. Or if I had a different job or a different church or whatever, that my life would be better. The problem is, is it's not going to be better. Your thoughts still go with you. It's not going to change your thoughts. When we take our thoughts captive... When we understand and know the truth of how God sees us, then we start to see some change. So I, I want to pause for a second because this will be a little bit of a confession, I think, as pastor of the church. I think the church, this is my personal opinion, and you could disagree with me and still be wrong. It's okay. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, you can disagree with me. But I think the church has done a disservice to people in the area of mental health. They've done a disservice in the sense that we have been very quick to uh, prescribe the, the, the language or prescribe uh, scriptures in such a way that that if somebody is really struggling and we see that their life is off, we're like, well, if you would just speak the truth of God's word, then, then you'll be better. Your life will be better. And I know even saying that, you're like, well, that's, that's true, right? But here's where it becomes a problem. And something that I think some of you will even identify with or agree with is that Oftentimes, what we're doing is we're trying to prescribe something based upon the fruit of what's going on in someone's life rather than getting to the root of it. And so what happens is somebody will walk through the doors of a church broken and hurting, and we try to fix the fruit of what's going on in their life and never addressing the sexual abuse that they've endured. See, our brain is a part of our body and it has roles and responsibilities. And when there is trauma in our brain, when, when something happens in our life, when something takes place, it causes trauma in our brain. And that trauma has to be addressed. It has to be dealt with. It's not going to just be some Christian answer to just say these verses and speak these verses and all will be okay. No, there's actually 
a synapse in your brain, a connection that's wired to the trauma that has to be addressed at the root. It has to be brought into the light. It has to be dealt with with a counselor and people who know this kinds of, these kinds of things that can address this in your life. So on one hand, you hear me saying, yes, we have to know the truth of God's word. We have to understand it. We have to be able to speak it and speak the promises of his word and not the lies. But I don't want you to hear me say that I think it is as simple as that when there is some trauma in your life that is holding you back. Because for me to say that would would be very, very dangerous. Because if we go through this life not addressing the trauma and just trying to address it by speaking some scriptures that some friends have given us, we're going to be very disappointed. We'll be very disenchanted because we were told that this is going to work and and it's not. And again, I'm not saying that there isn't time in w- times in which maybe you have dealt with the trauma and now you're in a place to where it's like some of the lies and some of those things, you're healed up from this. You do need to begin speaking the, wor- the, the message of God's word and the truth of his word. You do need that. There is transformational work that comes from it. But I just want to be really careful because we often focus on that and we never Never help people address this. And that's a dangerous place. Listen, I'm, I'm for Christian counseling. Kelly and I have experienced Christian counseling in our marriage. We've, the, the, I, I recommend Christian counseling to people because I believe that there is elements of our brain that I don't fully understand and that I cannot help you with with just giving you some scriptures to read. Without context, without an understanding of the root of what God is, or the root of what has happened in someone's life, oftentimes we just speak our Christianese common language and we try to fix it, and it doesn't work that way. So I want to give you some resources. Uh, The first is from a neuroscientist. Her name is Dr. Caroline Leaf, she's a Christian. Although many of the books that she's uh, writing are not necessarily coming uh, from, well, they're coming from a Christian perspective, but they're not overtly Christian in kind of the, you know, Christian bookstore type books. But she's a neuroscientist. She's really, really smart. And she studied the brain and she understands all of this. She understands what happens when there's trauma that's caused in someone's life and how that affects the brain, all of those things. And so she's got a book called um, Your Mental Mess. Uh, and, and so I would recommend that one. Uh, she's also got a book that's called Think, Learn, and Succeed. Uh, this is how to train your brain, how to start using your brain. I know that sounds funny, but, uh, but she's coming from a cognitive perspective. And, uh, and so her reading's a little bit more... Uh, heady. It's a little bit more uh, from the intellectual perspective. But then I want to give you another resource uh, from a pastor who's coming from a pastoral perspective, but as well as coming from uh, the research of, a, of, of science and all of that. And his name's Craig Rochelle. He's written a book called Winning the War in Your Mind. It looks like this. And we have a copy for every household. 
uh, that's available for you f- at no charge. You've already paid for it. Uh, if you are a giving member of LifeHouse, you've paid for it. And so thank you for that. Um, but we want to put this in your hands. We think this is a good resource for you. And, uh, and this, just taking one doesn't mean that your mind's completely you know, shot. It just means I want to do whatever I can to really grow in this area. And can I just encourage you, like, if this book is helpful to you, um, that you uh, not just give it away to someone who, who you think uh, is, is needs it, you know, like, hey, your mind's a little messed up, this would be good for you. Um, no, can I encourage you to go to those people who you do think that about, because I know you do, and just say, hey, would you be willing to read through this book with me, and you could read through it again with them, because our mission, our role, doesn't end here, and it doesn't end with us. There's people in your life that I'll never be able to reach, that I'll never be able to teach to, but you could actually make a huge difference when you live your life on mission with them. So just grab a couple people and and begin to go through that. If you feel it's helpful, if you don't feel it's helpful, give it to somebody else and, uh, and then let them grow and learn. You know, uh, it's interesting in, in our perspectives is, did you know that, that vultures and hummingbirds actually have something in common besides the fact that they're birds? Hummingbirds and vultures uh, wake up every morning. I assume they wake up. I don't, I don't know how that works, but I've never seen them sleep, but they wake up every morning, and they know that they have to go get food that day. The difference, though, is a hummingbird wakes up that morning and is looking for something good, something sweet. In fact, some of you have even put up hummingbird feeders in your yard and, uh, to help them find the sweetness that they're looking for, and a vulture is looking for death. It's looking for death. And I wonder how we wake up every morning of our life. What's our perspective? Are we looking to taste and see that the Lord is good? Are we looking for something good to take place in our life that day? Or are we looking for death? The third thing is this. I must remember how amazing his will is for my life. I have to remember that, that his will for my life has my best intentions. Like, I mean, he, he has the best intentions for, for my life. He, he's thinking about me, and I have to trust that to some extent. No, to all extent, I have to trust that. I was thinking about the disciples as I think about stories and stuff, and and. The disciples had it pretty good because they, they had Jesus with them, right? I mean, Jesus is, is there present. He's in their life. He's walking with them. He's teaching them. And the disciples never really could figure out exactly what the Lord was saying to them. There were times in which, you know, they're like hearing about it. And even when he's kind of predicting his, his death, it's in, in this cryptic way. And they just don't fully understand what exactly the Lord is saying. And then one day he dies. One day he's taken captive, he's beaten, he's utterly torn apart and then thrown up onto a cross and he dies. And their whole world and the way that they think changes. 
See, the way that they thought was that Jesus was going to be the, their Messiah and the deliverer and, and that he was going to be the king that they always wanted and then now all of a sudden he's dead and now all they can think about is death and they can think about is now what's going to happen and fear grips them and, and anxiety and depression and, and now they're just, they're just so wrapped up in their thoughts that one day after Jesus resurrection there's a group of disciples not all the disciples but a group of them they they're walking down this road it's called the road to Emmaus and as they're walking down the road all they're consumed with is the thoughts that Jesus is dead that now what are they going to do there's grief and sorrow and all of these things are taking place and then Jesus after his resurrection walks up to them taps him on the shoulder and says, why are you guys so sad? And they were so consumed with their thoughts. This is a really important fact. They were so consumed with their thoughts that when they looked at Jesus, they didn't even recognize him. They were so consumed with their depression, so consumed with anxiety and fear and all these things, they look at Jesus and they don't even recognize him. They're like, don't, don't you know why we're sad? Are you the only one in all of Israel that doesn't have a clue what's going on right now? Like, Jesus is dead. And they're saying it to Jesus. The Bible says that they spent more time with them and ultimately ended up in a meal. They're sitting having dinner together. And the scriptures say that all of a sudden, almost like, Scales coming from their eyes, they realized that they were actually sitting and having dinner with Jesus. See, when we are in the presence of God, when, we were, when we're tuning out all of the other noise and when we're listening to his, the whisper, the still small voice, our eyes are open to what it is that his will is for our life. Listen, he's madly in love with you. But we have to allow him to change the way that we think in order to see him. We're, we're going we're gonna to receive communion this morning.